Hello, everybody. This is Manny Escamilla, the Full Metal Archivist, coming in uh, for another uh, podcast in beautiful, sunny, and very temperate Santa Ana. So I uh, hope you're all enjoying uh, the uh, wonderful weather and that you're staying safe, uh, connecting with your loved ones, and doing everything you can do uh, during this um, unprecedented crisis. So today we're going to be talking with a former professor of mine from uh, UCLA's uh, Luskin School of uh, Public Policy and um, and uh, professor in urban planning, uh, Pavo uh, Munkinen. So he's a specialist in a, a wide range of um, kind of housing uh, economy or sorry, the economics of housing and uh, kind of takes a little bit of an interna- international perspective on the crisis that we have here in California. So he's done some pretty interesting work on uh, trying to figure out ways to understand and address California's housing crisis. Uh, so in this particular conversation, we had, um, you know, portions of the talk when uh, we got into the financial models that kind of created uh, single-family housing, uh, the lack of state support for some, uh, issues around local land use control, how sometimes the um, rules and regulations that we put in place basically make it impossible to create new housing, uh, as well as, you know, different paths moving forward. So, you know, one of the things that really want to dive into is always the idea of, look, let's uh, take a deep dive into these policy issues and figure out how to move forward from here because if we're just kind of rehashing the same uh, issues we're not really going anywhere right so it's uh, not enough to uh, know what's going wrong Uh, it's definitely a good starting point you definitely want to know how you got to the place that you are at currently but at the same time you also want to keep this kind of um, I guess headspace open in order to figure out what possibilities are out there in order to move forward. So, you know, talked a little bit about uh, potential solutions, um, you know, things uh, such as uh, creating, uh, you know, quadplexes. So the fourplex is uh, featured prominently uh, in, in this conversation and uh, the whole uh, missing middle um, kind of form of development. So everything that's not quite a single family home. Uh, but also isn't a giant apartment complex. So there's a lot of middle room there. Uh, and you know, for a whole set of reasons, this type of housing hasn't really been constructed um, in California recently. So a, a lot of older classic um, uh, walk-up apartments, uh, you, you do see these a lot in, uh, let's say, parts of French Park, um, even portions of the East Side neighborhood, um, other locations that basically have these large mansion-like uh, houses that were then divided uh, into uh, fourplex units. So, you know, that type of housing is a, a lot of uh, the discussion that we had. And, uh, you know, one of the other things that I enjoyed is we took a lot of uh, uh, international inspiration. So I think we touched on 
on uh, Japan, uh, Paris. Uh, there was some uh, discussions about Seoul in uh, Korea. And uh, so, you know, really broadening the perspective as to what's possible in housing, because I know a lot of it is that we're rooted in this kind of um, California policy landscape. Uh, but at the same time, there's... Uh, other um, you know, ways of organizing that kind of give us a little bit, little bit more of a regional model, right? So it's not just about living in our own cities, but learning how to live with neighbors and learning how to best uh, deliver services across uh, the wide, uh, open, and uh, wonderful community of Southern California, which is huge, right? If we were just our own little um, our own little uh, space, you know, would be, I think it's what, 20 million now or 18 million. I'd have to look up the number exactly, but we're a large uh, metropolitan region and we all depend upon each other. And even if we don't uh, always want to admit that, that you know, every one's prosperity is based on the prosperity of their neighbors and you know, having access to this large uh, market that is Southern California. And, uh, you know, it's the place that I call home. Uh, do, I do see myself as a probably Southern Californian uh, as my you know, primary identity, just because of you know, you know, born and raised in the middle of it here in Orange County. Um, but then having so many family members in the Inland Empire, uh, friends uh, over in Los Angeles, the uh, family members that I have down in San Diego, you know, it's a region. And I don't think that we're, um, you know, all that separate from each other, even if our uh, government institutions are. So there's definitely a major push uh, in this conversation to talk about the regional impacts of our local decisions. And I hope that you find this informative. Uh, please let me know. And uh, you know, without further ado, uh, here is Pavo. Well, uh, Pavo, um, I, you know, I took classes from you. Thank you so much for uh, providing a quality education and uh, for, <laughs> for, for doing this. Um, but we I aim still to, aim to please well, UCLA. Yeah, and uh, at, at this point, I still can't pronounce your last name. I can write it, <laughs> but uh, so if you could introduce yourself, uh, last name and all, um, and t- various titles and experience, that, that that would be awesome to start. Sure thing. Yeah, my name is Pavo Munkinen, and I actually don't pronounce it correctly. The Finnish version has dots over the O's and stuff. But uh, so I teach at UCLA in the Department of Urban Planning, and I focus on housing policy. And I actually do a lot of work internationally, especially in Mexico. But in the last couple of years, I've focused much more on California's housing crisis and double and triple crises. So, so what is going on with housing in California? Well, there are many layers of problems. I don't know where to start. Um, <laughs> I was thinking maybe, we, I don't know if you want to start at the present or start in the past. I, I'd like to start in, in the past. I know that was a, a little suggestion you had is like, okay, this is all going to be pre-crisis and kind of building up to a uh, multi-layered right. uh, um, yeah, intersectional crisis that we've never seen before. I, I don't know if there right. are any, any parallels to this. Moment. No, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's and it's, you know, it's really this pending... I mean, just to start briefly in the present, I mean, this pending end of this month, July, you know, 28th, the eviction moratorium is going to end. And so, you know, kind of what to do next is really up in the air still with the state legislature, basically, and kind of how they're going to address kind of the COVID-based crisis. But, you know, the COVID-based crisis has a long history in, in in other policies and um, the way the kind of housing has been built or not built in different parts of the state. Um, 
I mean, I guess I thought, you know, so just to, to frame it a little bit, I think that kind of the U.S. and, and California's housing policy has long been one of uh, kind of perpetuating inequality. So kind of for some people, it has been extremely successful, right? So, you know, we've been very good at creating kind of highly valued urban environments through innovative financing, uh, innovative governance structures, kind of very intelligently designed systems that racially segregate cities and directly benefit white families. I mean, that's kind of uh, been the whole 20th century, right? Um, and so it has always been kind of at the expense of people of color, especially black families for much of the 20th century. Um, and so there have been kind of these parallel to the very well-designed, well-targeted kind of homeownership benefits for white families. There have been things like redlining that, that racially segregated cities, the way we built freeways that kind of destroyed uh, low-income and, and, and communities of color neighborhoods. Um, the system of incorporated cities itself, the property tax rules, school districts, kind of we have this intricate web of policies that have created uh, really well-maintained, uh, highly valuable parts of the city and then other parts of the city where we put all of our kind of toxins and environmental damage. Um, so, you know, that's kind of the landscape that California had set up in the last 30 years, you know, so it kind of, it didn't manifest itself as acutely or as widely until, you know, until maybe 10, 20 years ago. Um, but in the last 30 years, what happened in California's case is that it became more and more built out, which I'm putting air quotes around built out because kind of within the ability to build new housing according to cities zoning rules, um, kind of the, the region had gotten more and more filled in with buildings and houses, right? And especially uh, single family houses. But kind of as the rules about what can, what can be built in terms of housing got more and more strict over the last 30 years. Um, and as kind of the vacant land all got built on, we started to have this shortage of housing. And that shortage really kind of hurts low-income families the most and is kind of a major cause for gentrification when you have parts of the city where the, the economy is doing really well and there's a boom in jobs and there's not a shortage of high wage jobs, but the houses for those new high wage workers are not being built kind of by the beach or in these fancy neighborhoods, then those high wage workers start looking elsewhere for, for jobs and, this, and start this process of gentrification. So, so kind of there's this longer history and then the kind of more recent history of the shortage yeah, and so in, I guess in the, in the LA case, it's uh, my uh, understanding is that LA was or had a a plan in the seventies for growth that it it is I guess was in excess of where LA's population is now, but that there was a movement to downzone much of Los Angeles, so that you had uh, kind of this brief moment of construction for multifamily housing um, in these kind of corridor. Um, uh, main arterial kind of regions, like in, in I, I forget exactly what that um, plan was called. It was yeah. you know, multi-center LA centers yeah. and centers and corridors concept. Yeah, 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 exactly. So it's like, and then there was a uh, reaction, and basically LA eliminated you know uh, potentially you know, millions of units to be developed, and now we're kind of living through the through the consequence of that. So that there was right. a, a moment in time where that was possible. 
Yeah, I mean, and, and the city of LA is the best actor almost on housing in the county of LA, right? So they're they're the good they're the good player really in this in this game. All the other cities are doing much worse, but yeah, the number. I mean, so in in the '60s, they had capacity kind of within the zoning code to fit housing for 10 million people. And nowadays they have capacity, the city of LA has capacity within the zoning code to fit like 4.2 million people. And the population is just 4 million people, right? So kind of we've filled in, like if you think about it, like uh, people talk about it as like a buildable envelope of space, right? So there's this kind of limit that the zoning code imposes on how much space can be built. And we've been filling that in over time. And also we've been reducing kind of what's legally buildable over the years as well. And for, I guess, the, the lay audience, we do have a bit more of a general audience. Like, what are the mechanisms by which you end up reducing what's what's legal? Like, what, what does that actually end up looking like on a, on a piece of property? Right. Yeah, I mean, so the main one is how much is, is the density that's allowed. Um, so on a particular piece of land, you can have certain number of housing units per acre, um, but also things like height restrictions, how much parking you require, the setbacks, kind of, can you build to the edge of the lot line? So there's actually this complicated web of separate rules that add up to, to mean you can't build a 10-unit apartment building on a piece of land. Um, and the kind of the easiest to understand, the most obvious is, is single-family zoning, right? So that says you can only have one unit with one kitchen on a parcel of 5,000 square feet or 5,500 square feet. And that's something like 70 to 80% of uh, the zoning in, in LA County, at least in Orange County, probably more, right, uh, is single family zoning. So once you build all those single family homes, then you can't add more houses. Um, and so you, when you do add more jobs and you don't add more houses, you know, people just have to kind of move farther away uh, or double up or kind of seek alternate accommodations and garages and backyards. Yep. So the, the, the informal takes over and becomes just an accepted way of life. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So with with the boom, like, so does, it doesn't sound like there's the same sort of restrictions on commercial development or office development, like where that's still like, okay, if you have an office complex, you'll go pretty high, fairly intense, yep. build it anywhere. Yep. And even in the plans that, so LA has kind of re-updated uh, some plans recently, like around the expo line. So we built this new expo line train, and then so they've done a, a plan around that line. And they, they're happy to add more space for offices. But then they added just, you know, like a couple thousand more spaces for housing units um, because, you know, cities are happy to encourage uh, job uh, development, but kind of less happy when it comes to housing. Right. And uh, I, I think I heard the I'm not sure who exactly said this, but it's like houses are where jobs go to sleep at night. And, you know, so we're willing to build one part of it, but not the other. <laughs> right. And again, and again, it's it's also unequally distributed. Right. So there's cities like where I grew up is Culver City. And they have, you know, 60,000 jobs and 17,000 houses. They're planning on building space. You know, we're getting like Amazon Studios is coming and HBO and all these streaming companies. They're going to add 5,000 more jobs. And right now the plan, the you know, the existing land use plan doesn't have space for more than 600 more housing units or something. So then, you know, when those, when those jobs happen and people want to move here, they can't find the space. Well, they bid up the price of housing in this city. But then they also start looking to nearby cities and, and often are the force of gentrification. 
So how much do you how much do you think of that is intentional? Or like if you have a city or like let's say like a cabal because you know at the end of the day it ends up being like seven or eight people that vote or recommend some of these policies and need to be convinced, right? It, it usually is a fairly small number of people that'll make the final decision. Um, how much of it is an active thought? of wanting to, quote-unquote, uh, make the community better, cleaner, safer, and ha- attract a, a different kind of uh, resident, you know, like on purpose, maybe if not you know, vocally, you know, vocalized in public, uh, versus a, a true belief in the idea that you can't build more housing. Like, it, like it seems like maybe some of that is at play, but I, I don't know to what extent. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, for different people, it's different factors. I mean, I think there definitely are people that, would tell you, yes, I do not want poor people living near me and I will actively work to make sure there are no apartment buildings built, you know, within a mile of my house. Um, and then I think there's other people that, that, that don't think about it, but, um, you know, unintentionally are supporting kind of the status quo. I mean, one of the big challenges, I think it would, would be a challenge even if there weren't kind of malicious intent is that, redevelopment is hard. It's harder than building on kind of empty, empty land is easier to build on than like developing um, apartments in neighborhoods that currently are, are low density. Um, and the change is hard, right? So, you know, we've built out this, this, we had this big empty, uh, you know, region and we've filled it in basically. And now we're, we're trying to think about how to densify parts that are already having residences in them. And you know, we don't really have a model for how to do that, right? I think that, you know, one of the tricks I think in the future is if, you know, once there are some nice 10 unit buildings built in single family neighborhoods and people see that the world doesn't end and everything's fine and right, it's, it's right. not um, as bad as they fear, then I think it'll be much easier. But kind of those first changes, I think, are, are challenging for people. And and do you think we're like uh, living through at least a kind of a small experiment with that, with the um, state ordinances allowing for um, ADUs and junior ADUs? So now, essentially, effectively, it's a small triplex complex for most single-family mm-hmm. homes. Yep. Yeah. I mean, you know, the so the state has been working for years trying to slowly take away some of the land use powers of city governments, and especially around ADUs and, and junior ADUs. And yeah, I think you know there are companies that are doing pretty, pretty interesting designs. And I think that, you know, that as that business picks up and there's like a constituency, because, you know, one of the kind of political economy challenges of this is that there isn't a interest group of developers of, you know, four unit or six unit buildings um, because they're illegal everywhere, right? So those developers don't exist and those developers aren't lobbying the state. So I think as, you know, kind of one path to this happening is as these companies that are building ADUs kind of make more money and get a little bigger, then they're going to lobby more to be able to do their business more and expand what they can do. Um, And as people see that, you know, a three unit uh, house next to them isn't the end of the world, then they'll be more receptive to it. Um, You know, I think most advocates would like to see change happen a lot quicker than that, but that's 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 what's happening. I mean, I also kind of don't like ADUs and junior ADUs because I I, I feel like they kind of perpetuate this hierarchy, this kind of cultural hierarchy of the U.S. where there's like the homeowner in a big house and then like this backyard cottage that they rent out to like less affluent people. Mm-hmm. And that's why I mean, I, there are some bills this year in the legislature 
that would just say, okay, we're just going to allow four plexes or three plexes, and they can be like condoized even Mm -hmm. so that it's four units on a single family lot. And each person, you know, each unit is owned by somebody. And that would provide kind of a broader equity building strategy rather than having like one person owns all of it and then rents out the smaller units. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely love that you know so someone of i guess my age like the only entry level um housing is kind of condom older condominiums right i, I can't quite afford mm-hmm. a brand new condo but i can um at least get started it's like okay an older condo um yeah, yeah. and you know I, I can see why maybe like in the history of condoization kind of removing um units out of the the um, rental market maybe that was a, an issue that was um not as I guess it was seen relatively negatively by individuals on the left worrying about like yeah. uh, about having affordable housing taken away off the market. Uh, so I don't know like what right. the complications there are with, with condo um, condoization, but it does sound interesting to be able to create new small scale. Yeah, ownership. and you can imagine. I mean, there you know, in a lot of countries, they have very cool co-op ownership structures for new multi-unit, small multi-unit buildings. I mean, it's like a it's like a tried and true model in a lot of places. Um, I have friends in Mexico City that have done that where there's like five friends, they get together, they pull their money, and they actually do the the project where they build a five unit uh, building together and then own it in a co-op. So, I mean, I think, you know, the zoning is part of the, the zoning is kind of the first problem you have to change, but also kind of the business model and how you make it more equitable is, is, is an important Right. And because and I guess it's like you're saying, there there is no... Um, existing kind of network of a small scale, you know, fourplex developers that right. are arguing for any of this stuff. Cause you know, we either said it's either going to be a um, 300 unit apartment complex or a single family home and they're going to be yep. separated. There's nothing in between them. Yeah. 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 I mean, and that's the other thing about the kind of the labor benefits of the missing middle. I mean, so people talk about missing middle housing and they use that to refer usually to kind of these fourplex, sixplex, 10 unit kind of smaller uh, buildings. And those can be built by smaller developers and, you know, provide uh, uh, labor structure that could potentially uplift more people than having like big companies with workers, even if they're good. You know, a lot of those jobs are union and good, but, you know, having allowing a lot of smaller companies to flourish, I think, would be a better strategy. Right. And I can definitely say in the Santa Ana context, not a lot of them are, are unionized and, and good operators. Okay. Yeah, so. <laughs> like, I can tell you that firsthand. There you go. There you go. Uh, and I think, I mean, I feel like, you know, changing the rules and allowing these, you know, the developers would appear because there are skilled people out there. There are entrepreneurs out there, you know, and a lot of them, what a lot of them are doing now is building McMansion kind of, you know, like in West LA, there's a lot of uh, develop, redevelopment activity and it's tearing down a 900 square foot bungalow and building a 3000 square foot box. Right. Mm-hmm. And so those same people could could just as easily be building fourplexes or sixplexes. Yeah, and that's like an interesting um, housing typology to me because what I essentially see that as is like an older, like um, like American Foursquare, just a very large ranch home for um, a multi-generational ranching family that has like 16 kids or something, right? Like that's about the same amount mm-hmm. of space that you have. Uh, but then in the U.S. context, then they were subdivided into these kind of fourplexes so like, you know, you're actually, you're building envelope and the amount of square footage that you're adding is about the same. You're just saying that yep. you cannot share, share that. It's like you either can afford it or you are not yep. allowed to be there. Yeah. I mean, and the, the economists will tell you they're, they're actually subsidizing the over Like, so the restriction, the zoning restrictions 
subsidize the overconsumption of housing, right? So you can, if you if you want to, you know, owning a single family home is a big asset and a very desirable asset for rich people. And you know, if you're going to spend a million to get a two bedroom, you might as well spend 1.3 and get a five bedroom or whatever, right? So people are buying way more space. And there's these, there are some interesting studies from UCLA, like some ethnographic studies of how people use single family homes and people don't use half of their space, right? I mean, it's like a very inefficient way to, to divide it, to divide up, right? So you're kind of getting these huge overconsumption and super wasteful in terms of, in terms of the environment. Um, and I guess I wanted to go back to one point that you'd brought up and because I don't think a, a lot of folks ever like mention it. I, I don't really hear this talked about a lot, but the, the incorporated city structure, like, can you, can you kind of dive mm. into that a little bit more and like how that plays a role? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, people talk about white flight from central cities, but I think thinking about it more as, uh, starting new companies, right? So, you know, the U S has this unique uh, federalist system where we have the federal government, state governments, and then county governments. And in most countries like Mexico, for example, what, what a municipality is, is the same as a county government. So most federalist countries would have like states, something like a state, and then that state would be divided up into municipalities, essentially. And then we have this fourth layer, which is the incorporated city, um, which is, you know, the older incorporated cities are quite different from the newer suburbs and most of Orange County, right? And the newer suburbs are mostly, I think the best way to think about them is as business, real estate business ventures, right? So yeah, they, they, people <laughs> would set these up and, and say, you know, our, our development has all these special things. And a lot of the time, for most of the, the 20th century, it was, it's going to be an all-white neighborhood and an all-white city uh, with an all-white school and all these things. Um, and so that, you know... Uh, you know, these suburbs often were leaving behind a legacy of pensions and old infrastructure and all these other costs for the central city um, and then creating fresh on inexpensive land, kind of new, uh, new spaces, new schools um, that were kind of concentrating affluence. Um, when, the, when the people that lived there were often still working in the office buildings in the central city. So it's kind of like a kind of a little bit like a leech, you know, or those what are those fish that live on sharks or a whatever? Remora. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like a remora city. Um, so they think they're very self-sufficient and self-sustaining, but uh, in fact, they're they're really using the central city and the kind of um, the value that having a big a big urban area generates for everybody, um, but then not letting uh, other people inside and to benefit from their from from their kind of parks and schools and stuff. Um, yeah, no. I, I was driving, I went over by, have you heard of Hidden Hills? Hidden, I have not, no. Oh man, Hidden Hills. I mean, it's really, especially with the kind of uh, police brutality lately, I think that, you know, that's another very important part of, you know, I think zoning, exclusionary zoning and police, and, you know, police brutality go, go hand in hand really and have traditionally. Um, Hidden Hills is, a, is like a private city uh, in the Valley. Uh, you can't go in. I, I knew, I kind of vaguely remember there's something weird and like super exclusionary about it. Mm -hmm. And I was near there a couple of weeks ago and I tried to check it out and they have like, it's like a gated community that you can't go in, but it's its own city. Okay. Yeah. So it's an entirely <laughs> privatized city. Right. Um, right. Which right. is, I, I would imagine 
like just off the top of my head, like isn't that like illegal? Like is there not like a but, yeah, I have I have to look into it. I should know that. Um, I, but I yeah, I mean, I think that you know this 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 thing really goes along with this uh, lines of you know self like this this theory that a lot of conservatives have of self sufficiency and like they don't depend on other places um, and their city's kind of this sovereign unit of governance when in fact most people are shopping in other cities, work in other cities, right, benefiting from the agglomeration or kind of the bigger bigger region. No, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, for me and something I tend to bring up on, on the show is, um, you know, one of the reasons, at least not locally, I'm so supportive of uh, rent control is if we look at the ownership patterns for a lot of these kind of lower income apartment complexes, uh, really all those rent checks are going to the most affluent parts of the county, uh, affluent parts of the United States, whether in real estate investment trust, um, yep. just you know, yep. random firms. And, you know, that's where Essentially, folks are paid a very low wage. Um, the rent checks go back to the same places that they're providing services for, and then they're expected to kind of eat up all the cost of like travel to and from, and you know, kind of raising the kids and, and everything else. So it, it just seems mm-hmm. to be a, a structural imbalance there. Yeah, no, I think, and in some places, it's extremely. I mean, it's it's an even worse problem, like Cudahy, for example, where m- most of the landlords are live out of state and are kind of hard to get in touch with, and so you have like the residents of the city are not. The owners of the property and so it really creates a problem for for governing those places yeah you end up looking to cut i had no idea so let's see we talked a little bit about how we got here um and i think uh you know, what, what are the questions that's kind of hanging over my head is like, you know, what are we actually doing about any of this like what are the structures um in place that are supposed to be addressing this lack of housing and these like uh, this affordability crisis that we're in mm-hmm. yeah i mean you know so i think that the common way people divide this up is uh, protecting protection preservation and, and production right in terms of, kind of what to do about the housing problem um i think that you know i i think those are that's a good way to think about it and it's basically you know protect renters with some kind of rent control uh preserve affordable housing by in part by building new housing and building new affordable housing. Um, and, you know, at the heart of it is one, one of the hearts of it is zoning reform. And one of the other hearts of it is, is spending money on housing. I mean, California is interesting compared to older regions in the country where we have a relatively low amount of public housing stock uh, compared to like New York, for example. Um, so we've, we've always, this place has always not wanted to spend money on, on, housing subsidies and that's that's one of the problems um we do pretty well on on building litec but you know we've not committed enough resources uh historically to to supporting the production of of subsidized housing right i'm sorry and can you say that phrase i wasn't familiar with the litec or the so the low yeah the light sorry the litec is low income housing tax credit so that's the the only way really that well the main way that uh we build subsidized housing, new subsidized housing in the U.S. And it's this program where uh, developers can get tax credits that they sell. So it's like kind of a way of, of directly giving nonprofit developers money to build uh, housing that then they rent out at a subsidized rate. Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting, I, 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 it's an interesting idea because it's kind of, it's got a lot of problems and it's under a lot of criticism. The using of tax credits instead of just giving uh, grants. Mm-hmm. 
Um, it was it's kind of clever because it's sufficiently complicated that people that want to kind of defund government um, don't can't figure out how to defund it because it's confusing. Um, right. And it's a tax credit. So it's like, oh, you're just giving money back. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Um, so in that sense, I mean, that's the benefit of it. I mean, the problem of it is it, it is it's kind of more expensive than it needs to be in terms of the way these markets for tax credits are run and brokers and a lot of layers of uh, financing and stuff. But, right. And then, these but yeah, are, so I mean, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 no you, you go ahead, Papa. Like, we're here for you, man. We're here for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we can come back to it later, but there's this there's this very interesting proposal um, by Senator Caballero from Salinas to use California state tax credits to cover rental non-payment. Hmm. So traditionally, it's a federal, you know, I don't think, I don't know of any I mean, there might be, but I haven't heard about any kind of state level tax credit programs for housing. And given that states can't print money like the federal government can, uh, there could be a very innovative way to create a state low income housing tax credit program that we could we could discuss. That is actually yeah interesting. I, I never uh, consider consider that because I, I wish that we had our own California like uh printing press so that we can maximize our um, employment and productivity while still keeping an eye on inflation, right? So that whole um, MMT, right. de- MMT debate that's going on. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, yeah that, that is super interesting. I, I hadn't heard about this bill yet. So if we want to dive into that, I, I'm totally, I, I have no idea what, what it's about. Well, yeah. So, I mean, so one of the big, so, so COVID uh, has made everything incredibly worse. Um, I mean, especially in its disproportionate impacts on the people that were already kind of the worst off, right? So, um, you know, people without stable employment or working in service industries are the ones that primarily are losing their employment. People that own single family houses and work in offices are, are primarily fine. I mean, if you look at like the rental markets compared to the ownership markets, like prices haven't changed very much uh, for ownership markets, but rents are, are even starting to come down in some rental markets. Um, I, mean, I think renters are going to be much more affected by by losing jobs. Um, and so there have been these eviction moratoriums at kind of various local levels and then at the state. Um, but, you know, so people in theory can't be evicted right now. Um, although I've heard that people are, some landlords are using criminal law to, to get around them and actually evicting people. Um, but in theory, people aren't supposed to be being evicted right now, but that doesn't solve the problem of you lost your job because of your business closed or, or you, you got sick yourself, um, you can't pay rent for two months, you're not evicted, but you still owe that rent, right? And so they've been trying to figure out a way, what to do about that. And this proposal, it's SB 1410. I think it passed this, passed one of the houses maybe. Um, but the idea is that the state would issue tax credits to those landlords that the landlords could sell or use themselves in lieu of that back rent that their tenants hadn't paid. And then the tenants would owe that money to the state instead of the landlord. And the state could potentially forgive it if the people were low income or, you know, they could, they could have a repayment plan of 10 years because, mm-hmm. you know, it's a lot to ask of a landlord, like your, your tenants haven't been paying rent for three months, start a repayment plan that lasts for 10 years. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, most tenants that have lost their job aren't going to get one right away. Right. So this is a way of kind of dealing with that, with that, that important money issue. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess the you know the immediate question in my head is like whether or not there's enough of a um, a consistent tax burden at the state level. I know California's uh, um, 
property taxes are, are there, they're going to be at least a, a portion of what needs to be paid. But you know, would that market be big enough? Like, is there enough um, there? Um, right. Income tax, business tax. Yeah. yeah. I'm not sure. I, I, I should know this, but I don't know exactly which kinds of where, where you're getting credited on your taxes. But yeah, because like for me, I'm like, okay, how much do I pay in my state versus my federal? It's usually for my under for my recollection, it's about a quarter of what I pay to the federal government. Um, right. But, but then there's all kinds of other ones, at least because um, I'm not even including the the county payments that I do then on my property taxes. So okay, there's probably right. yeah, it's, yeah, it's there. No, I don't think this this wouldn't be for property taxes. I don't imagine. I'm I'm thinking it would be more of a business tax kind of credit. Oh, okay. But yeah, I mean, I I like the idea of of giving these away and then worrying about how to cover those costs later because i think that our tax structure is pretty screwed up i mean especially property taxes right so like mm -hmm. hopefully this this could this bill like this lack of uh tax collection 10 years from now could lead the state to reform uh proposition 13. Oh, okay. So you, you said you said the the third rail items. I didn't bring it up. You did. Now, if we can talk about if we can talk about something that would end any political career locally, um, yeah, let's talk about it. Prop thirteen. You said you said. Well, I th and so actually, here's I have a good uh, local politics uh, idea that isn't reform. You know, I think so. Prop thirteen is this crazy idea from 1978 when property, you know, pr housing prices were going up a lot really quickly and people's property taxes were going up really quickly as well. And so there was like a legitimate issue in some cases where people's property tax bill doubled from one year to the next. Um, the reaction was a very bad one, which is uh, your property taxes are fixed. Your, the value, the assessed value of your house is basically fixed, um, goes up by 1% a year until you uh, die and then it's passed on to your children. Um, in this feudal system of and of now low. grandchildren, grandchildren yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to all your heirs, um, right? And so this is like a very you know we have we used to have among the best funded schools in the country, and now we have among the worst funded schools in the country, and this is the primary reason, right? So um, it also is super inequitable in terms of you know these uh, elderly people that you know maybe have a lot of money and are sitting on a lot of house value and pay very low property taxes uh, when their new neighbors are paying very high property taxes. Um, so it causes a lot of, of, of problems. Um, and, you know, so the schools and communities first, I mean, the, 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 the commercial version of Prop 13 is also terrible and that, you know, vote for the schools and community. What is it? Did you get the number? I, I, I haven't, seen, haven't seen the number yet. So I, I think know. it might be 15 or something, but anyway, so that that's coming up in the November ballot. So that's exciting. Um, which would change that change the, the rules, but only for commercial property. And the idea is that then later on, we could also change it for residential. Property. Yeah, but, I, I, I think you're saying the the uh, the the quiet part loud right there. Though that's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but the the less controversial thing. So there's also this thing called AB8, where different cities, depending on how much property tax they were collecting in 1978, that's how much. That's what percent of of property taxes they get now, they get now. So some cities like Culver City only gets 9% of their, of the property taxes collected in that city come back to the city. But other cities like Berkeley get something like 30 something percent, right? Mm -hmm. So there's this strange and arbitrary disparity in kind of how much of local property taxes city governments get back. And so that kind of reform, you know, you could, mm -hmm. you could imagine a reform where they just readjusted what percent of your local taxes 
you get back. Right, and then that would be getting back from the state, right? Because I, I know that's actually been an ongoing issue with uh, Orange right. County. So I think uh, what we always say is like we're a certain, um, you know, certain amount that goes to the state, and then we only get a certain amount back from the property tax uh, tax. Uh, right. Formula. Right. Well, most of it goes to the school districts, and then the cities uh, pick up the rest. Okay. All right. Well, more fina- more financial stuff to dig into. So uh, didn't yeah. realize it, it was um, you know getting into the history of cool buildings. I didn't think I'd be looking at uh, finance models and um, <laughs> the history of property tax assessment roles quite as much. But you know, it actually is yeah. the, the bigger component. So you know, the other question is like, well, maybe it should just be an economics degree. But then, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, you know, and the the one of the many problems that property causes is that cities don't get a lot of. Uh, financing from new housing, right? And so, you know, I think some people will tell you the one way to fix all this is change the the fiscal costs and benefits of housing, and then cities will want to permit it, right? Because right now they see housing as a loss because they have to provide services to the new residents, but they don't get much. They only get 9% of that property tax payment in return, right? So Yeah, no, and, and I think that's absolutely the the uh, viewpoint, right? So my time with dealing with uh, folks in uh, economic development, you know, great, great folks, but it was always about getting that new commercial center, that office, mm-hmm. park, and then housing was seen as a complete loss that you couldn't control and you were just going to be paying for. So, you know, we're already in debt. Why add, add to the debt? Yeah. Okay. So, um, let's see. We, we haven't talked about Rena and uh, you know I actually wanted you on here I think initially because I was all like because I wanted someone to talk about Rena I thought you'd be perfect because you were actually on uh, or, or you actually participated in the debate at SCAG so the mm-hmm. Southern California uh, Association of Governments is that the I always forget what yep. so the worst acronym ever SCAG uh, yeah, the potentially the the in the running for the worst local government acronym ever yep <laughs> well, I, yeah I, no I was on the I was there's like a subcommittee focused on this housing planning effort and i was uh, i was an ex officio member which is a non-voting member of that committee um which then later i think some of them regretted because then now uh, then the last regional council meeting they voted to kick me off that committee <laughs> they did <laughs> let's talk about yeah, that spear- then. <laughs> spearheaded by orange county uh representatives so. who, who exactly like uh, name names or, uh, or do i have to look this up in the public well, so, record and- i mean so <laughs> Uh, Yorba Linda, I won't, I won't name names, but an elected from Yorba Linda especially dislikes me. And she have, she was, she happens to be the chair of SCAG's housing um, and economic development subcommittee and the chair of the, the regional housing uh, committee. Yeah. And so Orange County has been really, so when I was talking earlier, I think framing it, like we often talk about uh, the history of housing policy in, in a certain way. I like framing it in terms of we've been very good at like how I started, right? So we've been very good at figuring out how to create equity building in housing and, and quote unquote, nice, safe neighborhoods for some people at the expense of other people. Um, similarly, Orange County has been very good at gaming the state's housing planning system for its own benefit. Like they're really good at it. Um, yeah. It's yeah, a we are. boring technocratic process and they have mastered it. So, yeah. so how do you it's no coincidence that, or, that, that representative from Yorba Linda is in charge of Southern California's uh, housing planning committee. Wow. So um, how, like, okay, this is 
you know, this is technocratic, bureaucratic, and boring, right? And I think we, oh my God, even last night, I think we had the mayor say like, oh, no one wants to look at the general plan because it's boring and it's boring for all of us, <laughs> even though he's actually highly involved in it and really loves right. this stuff from my understanding yeah. and knows the importance, but he's like, oh, it's boring. Yeah. Don't look at this. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, so how does one game the system under, uh, and you know, yeah. what are we gaming exactly? Yeah, I mean, and it's interesting because they were, they have, you know, exclusionary low growth suburbs have been really good at gaming the state housing planning system for for decades even though until very recently the state's housing planning system was like a meaningless effort like there was really they didn't need to but they were really good at it anyways um so so basically the, the short version is every eight years i mean so this is a fair housing law it was from the 60s right when this civil rights uh, movement and fair housing movements uh, we're going. And the idea was that every eight years, cities should have to plan to accommodate future growth, especially of, of housing for different for people of different incomes, right? So part of the part of the original intent is cities should have to have housing that can that that rich people can afford and housing that lower income people can afford, right? And so every eight years, the way it evolved, especially in the 80s, there was a big uh, change and this the current system was kind of established. Um, so every eight years, the state projects population growth, and then through this process of regional governments assigns eventually to city governments a housing need number, like a target number, and the cities have to plan to accommodate that much housing growth over the next eight years. Um, so you know there's there are multiple ways to game the system. Um, and the easiest one, I think, for cities has been to run the regional process. So each region in the state has a process whereby they choose how much housing each city in that region has to plan for, right? And so famously in the last round, uh, Beverly Hills had to plan for two units of housing. Oh, okay. and that was double the, the amount of, I thought. I thought it was only one. <laughs> Uh, and the city of Coachella had to, you know, similar size, had to plan for like 1500, right? So this gross inequity of kind of who has to plan for housing um, and low-income housing kind of regionally kind of has been the norm for, for Southern California, um, more so than for other regions in the state. Okay, so, so that's the um, regional housing need assessment, so the RENA um, in that mm -hmm. formula. Um, and then yep. that, uh, at least in our local context, would be mostly SCAG then, except for San Diego, it's pretty much um, yep. all SCAG. Um, yep. Okay. And, and so, you know, Orange County has all, also been very good at, and so kind of the main way that cities game the system is they themselves project very low growth. And then the way SCAG has done it traditionally is they just, they basically, instead of telling cities you should allow for this much growth. They ask cities, how much growth do you think you're going to have? <laughs> Every city kind of submits a number. Yeah. Uh, and then kind of, then they add those together and hope that they hope that they're the same as kind of their, their target from the state government. Right. And then, there's so, you know, you have cities like, you know, a lot of Orange County cities are, are because of, because they're newer and a lot of them are these plan master planned kind of places. They don't have this like spare zoning capacity on commercial corridors or uh, in other parts of the city. Like, you know, older cities often have neighborhoods that are zoned for a higher amount of development than currently exists. But most Orange County doesn't have that, that situation. So then when, the, when SCAG asks them how much they think they're gonna grow, they say, oh, well, we're full. 
So we're going to grow by five units, mm-hmm. and then their target is five units. Right, and then they, you know, at the next council meeting, just uh, happen to approve a twelve hundred unit development at the edge of town that they now <laughs> incorporate and is like being switched over, and everyone knows about this plan because. Right, know, they've had several right. meetings about it. Um, yeah, you know, that would never. <laughs> but the happen. thing is, if if they were assigned a higher arena number, a proportion of those have to be multifamily, mm-hmm. uh, have to be low income housing in theory, right? So it wouldn't it wouldn't allow you to only grow in in single family housing. Right, and you know I, I don't want to bash only on on all. all all in every Orange County um, city. I know that sometimes, uh, you know, for me, I think the, the thing that's impressive in the local context is that one of our um, quote-unquote nicer cities and uh, well-planned cities of, of Irvine, for, for a lot of the, the beige that's out there, um, has more affordable housing units than just about everybody else combined and um, has had relatively high target numbers. My understanding is because they've been growing so much and like a lot of their plans do, uh, at least under some of the older formulas, um, account for some of that growth. Whereas um, yeah. some other cities- Yeah, Irvine really stands out in terms of how much how much it builds. I mean, the main thing is the Greenfield expansion is a lot politically and financially easier than redevelopment. I mean, I think that's kind of, you know, one of the big drivers of resistance to growth is are there people nearby and then they don't want growth, right? If you're dealing with kind of expansion into into empty land, it's a lot easier. All right. And yeah, for me, I guess it's, um, I, I, you know, I, I, you know, obviously I grew up in Santa Ana, right in the, the very center of town. So for me, I always felt like I was living in a city and I'd never understood like the aversion. I never felt like I was growing up in a suburb, right? So I thought I was mm, in a right. city with lots of people around. And for me, there was always like a difference between like, yeah, there's like, I was always concerned and I didn't like, I guess have the terminology then about overcrowding rather than about density. I didn't, I mm-hmm. wasn't so um, concerned with the fact that there were so many people around me so much that, you know, every person around me didn't have their own room. Like, I, mm-hmm. I you know, that was kind of more of an imbalance. And I don't know if you can maybe talk about that distinction um, to your understanding or if, if you see one there or not. Yeah. I mean, that also, that's come up a lot in the COVID discussions when they first started saying, oh, New York is is bad. You know, New York has so many so much COVID because of its density. Um, yeah, I mean, and overcrowding is simply, you know, there's various ways to define it, but it, like you're saying, it's um, people per room or people per square foot or kind of within a housing unit, uh, how many people live versus having four-story buildings, uh, you know, with, with people living more spread out inside those buildings. Um, yeah, I mean, and no, notably, Hong Kong has, you know, 10 deaths from COVID or something, and it's one of the highest density cities in the world. So on that front, I don't think there's a there's a strong correlation. Um, and actually, so Southern California, so this, this time around with the RENA process, overcrowding played a major factor uh, in the regional determination. So like I was mentioning before, traditionally, the state projected population growth and then assigned regions kind of housing targets based on their growth. But a law passed in 2017 made the state also consider overcrowding and cost burdened households as a factor in terms of how much housing they were going to have to build. And so Southern, so SCAG has a 9.8% overcrowding rate, according to the census definition of overcrowding, um, which is much higher than other regions. Like the Bay Area region has like a 6% overcrowding rate. Um, and so because of that high overcrowding rate, it's one reason that Southern Coast, the SCAG region's number, like the big picture housing target for the whole region was way higher this year than it was in previous uh, 
housing planning cycle. So Southern California region has to plan for 1.3 million units of housing. Um, and the Bay Area just got their regional number and it's only something like 440,000 units. Oh, okay. uh, so yeah, I mean, so we're a much more overcrowded and a much more cost burdened region than, than other parts of the state, even if rents might be lower, right? Because incomes are lower generally here. Right. And that's actually uh, surprising to me. I didn't realize that the, the Bay wouldn't have had the, the same overcrow- overcrowding issue. I Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I think and I think actually even the people in the state government were surprised. So basically they they use the same methodology for each region to determine what their regional number is. And they compared kind of that region's overcrowding rate to the national average, which is something like 3%. Um, and I think they were expecting the Bay Area to be higher too. Yeah, and this is one of these weird things where, like, I almost res- I respect that in policy. Like, I know that there's probably like an objective goal, of, like, okay, this is our understanding, and we're gonna like tackle it somehow. But that mm-hmm. you know, focusing on the outcomes and then doing the analysis, you know, without the prejudice uh, there initially, yeah. um, being consistent, yeah. is is important. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you can argue about the construction of the methodology, and we argued about it a lot um, in terms of should you use overcrowding rate or should you use affordability or should you use land costs or something uh, there's a bunch of different ways you could break it down i mean i was especially worried i think that the the, the way we ended it ended up happening kind of made sense because i think the regional housing need should be determined based on overcrowding but then where you assign that where you change the zoning shouldn't be based on overcrowding mm-hmm. because if you then say oh uh the parts of the city that have overcrowding are where we need to build more housing then you're going to be targeting the lower income parts of the city generally, right? And I think the parts of the city where we need to build more housing are the higher income parts of the city. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that basing, you know, kind of going forward as cities are revising their housing elements over the next year and a half, um, which is something we can we can discuss. Uh, I think that's going to be really important in terms of where zoning has to be changed to allow for more housing. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'd love to jump into that. I, I yeah, because the thing that I'm kind of seeing with all this and the term that's stuck in uh, in my mind, and this is you know one of the I learned a lot in the, the program. So shout out to Luskin's, uh, you know, UCLA's um, urban planning program. <laughs> I learned a lot. So, uh, but yeah, one of the things that stuck with me was the I never heard the term I guess growing up of the exclusionary um, um, suburb or the exclusionary city, right, or exclusionary right. zoning, like in general, like as mm-hmm. far as creating a, a set of patterns that basically say we do not want um, lower income people to, to live here. You, you kind of hear about you know, bits and pieces of it and was familiar with that, but not like as an overall um, structure. And especially right. here in Orange County, like thinking about the, the older northern uh, section of the county and then the southern uh, section. Uh, and then everyone kind of asking, like, why is this? Why is the southern um, city uh, so nice? And like, why can't we be like that? So that's one of the ongoing kind right. of like complaints here locally is like, well, Irvine has all this nice stuff. Why can't we? Uh, we're right next door. Um, right. And I think it goes a lot into this this history that you know there are structural reasons why that happened. Um, yep. Yep. And they're all- and they continue today. I mean, you you look at many cities general plan and usually some of the first language is going to be the goal of this plan is to protect residential neighborhoods which I don't know if you've heard me go off about because I think it's one of my main problems with kind of the mantras of city planning. And, you know, so by residential neighborhoods, wink, wink, we mean single family neighborhoods, which are often, you know, the affluent ones, the wider ones, right? And so, you know, city planners, uh, a friend 
who teaches at the University of North Carolina, Andrew Whitmore, said, city, planner, city planners have become wealth managers for the affluent, um, right, to protect these neighborhoods from, from lowering, which is, yeah, which no. is a big problem. And it's, you know, with, the, with activism, I think it's an, especially a challenge because, you know, you can totally understand uh, activists that are focused on new luxury condos in lower income neighborhoods as like this symbol of gentrification um, because they are right. They come with gentrification when, and it's harder to get people to focus on like the exclusionary suburbs that have a lot of jobs, you know, that are kind of the actual root cause of that gentrification. Um, I mean, it's harder to change the exclusionary suburbs, I think, than it is to block new development, but you know, ultimately that would be, I think an important part of a, of a solution. Right. And yeah, for me, I'm in kind of a double bind here, right? So there's the um, idea that, you know, Santa Ana is in the regional context already kind of uh, dense. Uh, it has both density, overcrowding, and just general lack of um, economic resources for, for members of this community. And, mm-hmm. you know, part of me wants to, you know, any new development to um, have, you know, people that would be part of that development to have an equity stake, both as either, you know, the people living there or actually, you know, being part of a, a fourplex construction, a townhome construction, right? So for me, like the, the, the best way forward is like, okay, we'll just take a single family uh, piece of property and allow two families on there with, you know, two to three story townhomes that then actually maximize the side yard and maybe have an archway in between for some form of separation, you know, it's, you know just some mm-hmm. other kind of, uh, of um, slightly more urbanized uh, community, because mm-hmm. any attempt to really create additional units then does put on gentrification pressures, and it's already there. So, like, how do we relieve that? And you know, um, right? Because there's pretty much no, or not no support, but it's, it's harder to gather support for construction. Because I, I don't think we've seen positive examples yet, and right. that's that's hard to build. And I, I'm still looking for answers. So. Right. What well, I mean, answers? it's it's a it's a not very encouraging battle cry, like build more housing in the rich neighborhoods and not in our neighborhood. We're going to like go over to another city and uh, go to their council meetings and make them approve developments there. Right? No, hard to get people excited about it. Yeah. It's tough. Right. So in, in yep. again, the Santa Ana context, we're redoing our general plan. Uh, the uh, proposed land use changes for the general plan just came out uh, last night or you know, for this last agenda. And yeah, overall there's, you know, it's basically focused on infill, uh, development along major transit lines. So we're getting a new uh, OC streetcar, so there's you know, a lot of expected development there. Um, and then along some of the arterial corridors, but you know it's weird to me because in the California context, arterials are a lot of our major streets, but we have no kind of mandatory requirements for high capacity bus lanes or you know like for me, I would I I, I see every like major six lane highway or main arterial of road as a site for BRT in Southern California, right? Like that yeah. is the most ideal form for me because look, it's going to be less expensive if it doesn't work or some lines need more, you, you move the buses around. Like yeah. th- there's a lot of flexibility built into that and kind of this robust regular pattern, but we're not doing anything like that, right? We're just kind of allowing our arterial highways to be arterial without actually providing what an arterial network is supposed to provide. Mm, interesting. Yeah, like that. Yeah, know. I mean, it's, it's tough. I mean, I think that also kind of within the, within the powers of city government, I mean, especially around land use, there's a lot of pro- prohibitory powers, but not a lot of proactive powers. So I think that, you know, given especially the f- kind of fiscal constraints that California cities have, you know, a lot of what people actually want 
in terms of community development and economic development. It's just almost like the city doesn't have the ability to provide that. Um, I was I was I had a crazy idea with some students the other day of congestion pricing uh, as like a way to raise money for cities. Um, you exempt everyone that lives in the city proper from the congestion pricing, but then all the other people driving through your city have to pay this toll. And then you use that money to, <laughs> yeah. to do some community development projects. Right. So now you're just looking into mass surveillance of everyone coming in and out of your city. Pablo. Is that, that, that's what I heard. I heard, I heard a mass I mean, surveillance. Uh... <laughs> it's, it's creepy, but uh, you know, I think actually the, the, in the defunding the police conversations, I think this proposal out of LA to remove police from traffic stops completely and do it all with cameras, I think is a, like, I wouldn't be excited about cameras. The, the rollout has been messed up in most places, but I think that that's actually a great idea in terms of, you know, having, you know, the, the benefits of having roving cops pulling people over randomly and running license plates to get people with warrants and stuff, I think is like a, not a very effective system. And it also leads to all of these uh, violent attacks. You know, I think that, uh, so as long as you're doing surveillance cameras, because you're getting rid of traffic cops, you might as also do congestion pricing. Okay, okay, I, I, see, I see that argument. Um, yeah, and I, and I think it's always just yeah the way things are rolled out and uh, you know how much um, you know, the data privacy and the um, the right yeah. to the right to the privacy in the public space is definitely under under attack and has been for right. for, when, for a very long time. Although the other way to do the 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 traffic call, I mean, I think complete streets. You know, there's this there's good evidence that shows if you have very narrow streets. You know, narrow lanes with a lot of things happening around them just make people drive slower. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's like one of the big problems with Southern California is our streets are so damn wide. We're just driving, right? So yeah. as soon as you make me a little nervous about hitting things, then I, I slow down. I think that's, that's a better solution, actually. Yeah, no, absolutely. And for for me, I think uh, what I've always wanted is I want a giant like BRT bus lane with like people loading like right in the center because we have these major arterials with like um, palm trees in the middle and then some random landscaping. I'm like, look, just have that right. be the loading platform. And then technically you have two small roads. It's much more of a uh, boulevard yeah. um, yeah. setup. And because one of the things we're seeing here is where like uh, we literally again last night, uh, city council had uh, one of the council members complain about um the, the amount of um, racing that we're having on the streets and like why mm. is Bristol uh, Street um, here? And if you want to look at Bristol and then the Bristol Master Plan, the single worst planning decision, actually not the single worst, there's other really bad ones, <laughs> but what, the single worst ongoing planning decision in, in the city, um, basically 1990s arterial highway plan that expanded a road from uh, four lanes to six um, mm -hmm. and has been going on for the last 30 years of my life and basically you know, totally <laughs> tore up the, the entire yeah, central um, corridor right. of the city. Never-ending yeah. expansion. It's no. like the 405. Yeah, it's just a, and it's like, well, if at least if it would have been done, it would have been done. But there's like no rezoning around it. Just took out a bunch of single-family homes, commercial um, office fronts, small dentistries. We literally kicked out Mr. Miyagi. So there's an inspirational character that was like <laughs> the basis for Mr. Miyagi, who had a karate wow. studio on the street. And we're like, yeah. nope, move, you know. That's... That sounds like city planning. Yeah. And, um, you know, and we were like, why are people racing down these roads that are right. <laughs> designed to race down? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I've, I was surprised that there wasn't more swift action around complete street stuff with COVID. And, you know, you just, you go out in the city when there's half as many cars and you're like, wait a minute, it's way nicer. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, and a bus, you know, BRT, quiet buses, like they're really, you know, and I was in Bogota last year. For the first time and i was you know the the 
way that a BRT lane can make, you can have a street that's like a very calm pedestrian street effectively mm -hmm. with cafes and stuff. And a bus comes by every five minutes or 10 minutes. Yeah. You barely even notice. I mean, it's almost like you're in a park, right? Yeah. So I think that, that that model could really work here. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, and it doesn't seem to be happening though. Right. It, and I guess it's maybe the, the again, like you know, talking about the regional um, governance structure, right? There's no, um, I guess the thing I'd love to see is a smart system, right? So like a Southern Metro area regional transportation network, right? Something that's like mm -hmm. completely the Southern California regional transit system right. um, rather right. than it being broken up. And I know there's more kind of calls for that in the Bay, the Bay Area currently. Um, right. But it just... It's weird, right? Because people don't live in counties, right? People don't really live their lives within cities. Like, unless you're in this planning world, like, these boundaries matter a lot less than to the right. average person just trying to get from point A to point B. Um, totally. Yeah. But. Yeah, well, I mean, I, you know, Culver City has a has its own bus system uh, <laughs> with six lines. Uh <laughs> Should not really exist, I don't think. Uh, okay. So you're, you're arguing against buses in Culver City? I think it should just get taken over by Metro. <laughs> all right, all right. Yeah, I know, I know. I mean, I also think most small cities should probably be absorbed by their big neighbors, too. Oh, okay. No, that's, no. A, that's an unpopular opinion among small cities. Wow, okay. Well, define a small city. Like, who's on the chopping <laughs> block? I think maybe less than 50,000. Okay. It, it, around but, that seems too small i mean you know it's a neighbor you know like a neighborhood council in la is something like fifty thousand people okay so. no but uh, actually i, I don't want to get into this a little bit more so um because what are the actual like arguments for um removing small cities or at least incorporating them into, into larger cities what, what are the actual arguments there well the arguments for having them is that you better align with people's preferences, right? I mean, so like the classic kind of uh, economics or political science argument for, for smaller cities is people have this kind of diverse array of preferences for tax, for how many, how much tax they want to pay and how much, what level of services they want to receive, right? And so some people want to pay a lot of tax and receive a lot of services and some people don't. And so by having all these different kinds of cities um, people can just choose the city uh, that has the right amount of taxes and services for their preference level. Um, what that ignores is that like people's incomes are very unequally distributed, and so you know effectively uh, smaller cities within a metropolitan area are are almost always exacerbating inequality by having, for example, better funded schools in richer neighborhoods and you know things like that, right? So or less environmental contamination uh, in richer neighborhoods. And so I think, you know, I think eliminating, so if we went, like I mentioned before, you know, we have the system of incorporated cities. If we shift, we ended incorporated cities completely and just had counties, mm -hmm. I think that would reduce spatial inequality and inequality generally. I don't think it would solve the problems, right? So the, all the other countries that only have three levels of government, right, where they have states and then <laughs> municipalities, they also have a lot of inequality across space. Like you, know, you could think of Paris or something, but I think it would make it harder to have the schools be way better in, in some cities, for example, in other cities. Uh, okay. It would just make it, you know, like, like you know, we, we make it very easy to have uh, more segregation by having different level, different cities within a metropolitan area. Right, and then the, the, the zoning powers go along with that. So the people that don't want anyone coming in then are able to control it. 
they all get together. Yeah. I mean, and you know, so when you talk about like regional regionalism, I mean, the, the most obvious, you know, the, the first thing that should definitely be regional is the transportation system. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, that seems like you were saying that's like the most obvious one, but then you think about other things like, like school systems or, you know, kind of the distribution of parks or things like that distribution of street cleaning. And, you know, kind of, I don't think there's a good argument, uh, a good moral argument that some neighborhoods deserve to have dirtier streets and, you know, uh, worse schools, right? Mm -hmm. So I think everything we do to make things more equalized in terms of public services uh, is a good is a good move. All right. And, uh, you yeah, know, going to your point earlier, though, with uh, the relevance of political economy, there is no constituency kind of ready to vote themselves out of office, right? So if I'm a city, <laughs> yeah, it's like, I'm a city council member here, why am I going to, like, unless I really do think that I'm going to win this next round, and, like, now I'm going to be in charge of double the amount of, <laughs> of space. Uh, but even then, yeah. it's like a 50... <laughs> I don't see it happening. Falling on your own sword. It would be a real falling on your own sword situation. And you'd have to get a, enough of them. I don't know. Right. And so that's almost a, oh my God, it's the, it's like a long-term cultural shift, right? It's like almost like the, the recreation of a parallel to the American dream mythos. It's like, there hasn't been kind of an equivalent, like urban version of that, right? It's like, you know, we, we had yep. this idea that when you go to the suburbs, everything's going to be great. You're going to raise your family. And I don't think we've quite gotten to the point of like, you're living in this really diverse um, inner uh, city and actually, you know, not inner city in a pejorative. I mean, like, no, you're just in the inner city and it's a nice place to live and, you know, this is you're living in a, a really great neighborhood, um, but like that kind of mythos hasn't taken over here. And I I know that there are international versions of it, right? So like to me, like I, I the only one that's like immediately coming to mind is the uh, Korean uh, dream or the Seoul model. So you're like, okay, you're gonna have a three mm -hmm. unit um, uh, condo complex right in the middle of, uh, of town, and that you're gonna have access to everything, and your family's gonna you know, be close by as well. And then that's like that dream is like you want that totally and uh we don't really have that here it's still that american uh single family home mythos yeah no i i totally agree with you and i think that having like the cultural side is extremely important i've 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 been in meetings with like philanthropy people before and tried to sell them on the idea of like funding a kind of advertising campaign around <laughs> like condos like the new american dream house mm -hmm. is like a condo in a sixplex for example and there's actually some some interesting ones in Portland, where they're they're like a three story six unit building on a five thousand square foot lot. Mm -hmm. There's no parking, so you you get more space on the lot, and you know so that kind of a thing. Uh, I think people would would like it if it if it existed. Um, and I think that once, like I said before, you know once you once older generations saw the, you know younger generations being able to buy condo that they could walk to places from you know they might they might get convinced but i don't know i i'm just continually surprised at how unwilling to let things change a lot of older i mean i want to malign older people but <laughs> there are a lot of vocal older people uh just uh, insisting on keeping everything they have and preventing younger people from getting anything well i i also say that no that, but there is a um... How do I say this? Uh, the, the mythos is strong because even amongst uh, folks of my own generation, they're like, no, 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 we want we want to retain these single family homes. Like I can try to convince other people that are very active and a lot of social um, kind of justice work. But then to tell them, like, I want a three story, I, I, you know, I'd want to replace your home with two three story townhouses like that would be mm -hmm. like the mo for me, like that's fine. Like I don't need 
Uh, you know, Paris is a beautiful city at like four to five stories, right? What's the what's the max yeah. there? Um, Something like that. Yeah. And the the idea that we need to build like high rises, you know, don't necessarily need, but you know, something that's just a little bit bigger, uh, I'm okay with. Yeah. And a lot yeah. of them like, no, I really like my yard, or I really like this right. this single family home. And like, oh wow, this is this is going to be a lot harder and going to take a lot longer <laughs> than I thought. <laughs> Well, and, and notably, it's and, and notably and unfortunately, it's the people that that already kind of have the resources to get one that are going to be the more powerful people, right? I mean, that's you know, we need more renters on city councils and more kind of leadership from people that that haven't made it in that sense, because I think that's kind of part of the problem with lo- local politics. Is I bet ninety something percent of city councils in Southern California are are run by people that own single family homes, right? Right. And uh, I think the uh, one of the more progressive ones in our locale, uh, West Hollywood, uh, does have renters on their city sure. council. Because um, yeah. they, yeah. they're structured that way, right? But it is when you have a um, someone who's at least willing to listen, right, and not totally dismiss you outright, that's, uh, mm-hmm. that's a, that's a mm-hmm. key point. Yeah. I mean, and it is kind of a big blind spot, too, for people that kind of assume that this, like, the pinnacle of, life is owning a single family home and then kind of, you know, half of the state isn't in that situation. So what's up? Like, how do you, how do you square that equation? It's aspirational, right? You're like, well, we aspire towards it. Doesn't necessarily mean everyone's going to get it. And so it's like the, um, yeah, I guess the, the argument would be like, well, it keeps people motivated to work hard and like go into the (laughs) system and like sweat it, to sweat it out. (laughs) So with everything we've got, yeah, can I? So one. So I'll just do one pitch on just to end on the housing element thing. Uh, I don't know, if, you know. So over the next year and a half, every city in Southern California updates their housing element, and it is a it is a place for local activism um, around issues of affordable housing and stuff. I mean, I think it doesn't always imply like adopting rent control and inclusionary zoning, but it could. So I think that you know people are interested in housing politics and housing activism um, you know every city has to like evaluate their housing and think about it and change the zoning a little bit and make some new policies so it's a good moment uh, to get involved there okay and are there other uh, folks already kind of organizing around this right now um so we can like provide a link in the description or at least uh, point folks in the right direction well so abundant housing la is definitely organizing around housing element updates I don't know of other, I mean, I think traditionally like tenants union type groups haven't focused on the housing element as a moment of, of organizing, but I don't think there's any reason that they shouldn't because, you know, it's a, it's a point because also well, traditionally housing elements were, were these very weak efforts that cities went through hire a consultant to do it and they didn't have to pay attention to it. I think this time around, um, there's going to be a lot more scrutiny. And there's going to be a lot more expectation from cities to to actually put forward a plan to kind of address their housing problems, right? And so I think that um, tenants groups uh, definitely could have a lot of uh, influence there. All right, and yeah, I think a, a lot of what we've talked about this has been been awesome. Um, has been about the kind of renter uh, market, folks that are are I would say probably you know working poor, uh, middle class, and then even the, some folks that are more affluent that are in the housing market. But what about uh, mm-hmm. kind of what we're doing for folks that are totally disconnected from from jobs or, or kind of chronically um, homeless uh, populations? Like what is going on there? Because if we talk about housing, we don't even bring up the issue of homelessness. Yet. That seems like a major uh, yeah. line. Well, and it's if we believe the worst predictions, you know, after July 28th, 
it's going to get a lot worse. I mean, the homeless count this year was already showing at least LA County's uh, unhoused population up by like 12% from, from last year. And that was in January. So that was before COVID started. I mean, the state's response has been, they've had a response. It's been inadequate. I mean, Project Room Key is this idea, which I thought is a good idea, right? To acquire uh, hotels and motels to use as kind of temporary, but then convert maybe to permanent, more permanent housing situation for people. Um, they're plan, you know, so LA County has a homeless population of 60,000 plus, right? And the, the Project Room Key original goal was 15,000. Mm-hmm. And I think they have 4,000 or something. So, you know, it's it's a lot of, a lot of people um, that are unhoused. And I think that, you know, there has been criticism of, of as there always will be of all the effort. I mean, so HHH money um, has built something, a few thousand units of, of permanent supportive housing, which is great. I mean, I think it's just a huge problem that we haven't been putting sufficient energy and attention towards, but mostly it involves money and it's hard to, it's hard to get. I mean, I think that, um, yeah, I mean, the, I like the, the project room key work like the model is good. It just hasn't lived up to its expectations. Yeah. Right. Perhaps it will. Right. And yeah, I definitely would like to look more into that because um, at least for, for us and um, well, it's a lot of other cities, right? The, the end of single room occupancy hotels that you know, used to house a lot yeah. of this population. It's like, okay, it's blight. Like, well, yeah, totally. so it's like, uh, yeah, but if you don't plan for housing these individuals, where else are you going to, to do it? Um, yeah. So it's either on the streets or yeah. in a hotel room, essentially. Or yeah, room. totally. Yeah, I mean, in New York has had has long had this uh, right to shelter ordinance that LA didn't, um, and so you can I think you know the theory is that if you're unhoused, you can get a voucher to stay in a hotel every night if you if you want. Um, and but you know there was a lot of problems with that. I think you had to move out every day and then go get another voucher and these kinds of things. But I mean, I think that's like a minimum, you know. And I think advocates here didn't want to, some didn't want to adopt that um, because it would have limited other kind of efforts to build permanent supportive housing. Uh, the permanent part being uh, what they were focused on rather than this kind of temporary moving from place to place. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it does seem like, especially with kind of short-term rentals and the way kind of that tourism, you know, like the hotel industry is changing a lot. It seems like those buildings like should be used this crisis i mean also dorms like i don't know why ucla hasn't we've we've sent emails but you know how that goes um <laughs> you know we have all these dorm rooms yeah. that are empty right now uh because the students were sent home and like they could be used for for temporary housing too i mean it's it's one of these things where a lot of times you know people talk about crises but then they don't act at the crisis level that you would expect you know if you right. say if you call your friend and say, hey, I have a crisis, then they think, okay, I'm going to do something very dramatic in response to a crisis. Right. It's like my keys are already like, in the like, this is year 22 of our housing crisis, and uh, we still haven't really decided to do anything. It's like, let's very, study very the Very frustrating issue. world. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We're going to do a pilot study uh, to address the emergency. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. No, that, that makes sense. Um, man. So I, I guess for me, it's like, you know, the it's weird, right? Because it's like trying to be both like, it's like a planning practitioner and then also just on the, the policy side, but then they're really just intertwined, right? You can't do one without the other. And um, right. it's still, um, 
you know, what I'm trying to do is at least educate and inform and like try to get a coalition around some of these issues. And that's still, right. yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, it needs more work because it's like I, I like simple. Yeah, you know, people do like simple solutions, but then these are very complicated issues. And yeah, um, yeah. Do, do you see? I, mean, it? Oh. I think I mean, there like in terms of the local housing issues. I mean, I think so. One, I have a piece I could I could send you. Um, uh, if you're interested, I mean, I like I think the way is changing the thinking around local housing to something that's proactive rather than reactive. So instead of a city plan being like worried about what they permit and what you have to do to get a permit and these kinds of things, instead saying, here's our plan. We want to build affordable housing and here's the, like, we're going to think about how to do it. We're going to set aside municipal land. We're going to offer develop. We're going to tell developers, hey, here are the parameters of a building you could build here. Like anyone want to build it? We're going to like go proactively like court nonprofit developers and ask them if they want to build things, right? I think that, you know, having like a agenda, I mean, returning to this idea of planning as like, here are the goals we want to achieve. Like, you know, if you look at a city plan in California, a general plan, it's not like, here's like an agenda of action that we're going to take to, to realize this plan. It's like, here's what we don't want, here's what we're preventing, here's what we dislike. And I think that's the wrong way. About it. Right. This is the thing that pissed off the least amount of people in this community. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, therefore. <laughs> exactly. The bureaucratic uh, mentality. Here's the thing that won't get me in trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, I like this job. I want to keep it. And this is what you get. Um, yeah. I mean, it is intertwined with politics because, you know, and I think, but I think city planners, even outside of council can have a lot of influence. Again, this idea of like using complicated technocratic stuff that's boring to trick your city council something that i think planners don't don't do enough right i won't i won't give the examples but i've seen it happen so uh <laughs> i think that uh you know as if there are city planners out there like figuring out what your own goals are and then like achieving them without telling council what they're voting on a good move yeah you definitely don't want to out anybody on on, on this but yeah no there, there is the uh the entire gorillas in the bureaucracy kind of effort yeah. right you, you do what you can um you fight the fights uh discreetly as much as you can and a lot of these things are yeah at the end of the day like education on, on certain issues right so you have people that genuinely believe um um that what they're doing is protecting residents and you know to a certain extent yeah the residents voted them in there in order to prevent, prevent projects um but then it's like, well, these are the other people that you're hurting, right? And it's kind of giving voice to the entire um, community and having this idea that maybe, you know, your community doesn't just stop at your borders, right? So, like, we, you know, yeah. on, on the progressive left, we're very open about, well, yes, we like people from everywhere to come in, but not to our town. Or, you know, like, really, I'm only concerned about people here locally. But, you know, once they move out to the Inland Empire, they're no longer my responsibility. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, I, I think that's a very short-sighted way to, to look at something. And, to, you know, you, I think your responsibility is you kind of to the... Uh, to your fellow human beings in, 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 a, in as much as you can, right? You have your limitations, but, you know, you should be worried about something greater than just the kind of dirt around, you know, this imaginary line that was created totally. because of, um, as you said, uh, a fluke of American Western expansion. <laughs> Is that the, the best way to think about it? The incorporated city? Sure. Yeah, or just, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I actually don't know where it first started, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's part of I don't think they intended it. You know, it was like a, it was, well... It was a clever way to to be settler colonialist, right? So uh, they they set up cities as business ventures, 
partly so that you know Western expansion could happen and and people would be entrepreneurs would be encouraged to go develop new towns in order to make tons of money. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean it was an intentional an intentional land grab. Yeah, no, and but yeah, no, like your your point about uh, ignoring people beyond your borders, I think, is especially important, especially in a, you know everywhere in the world, but also like in a metropolitan area, you know, the, your your expensive house in Rancho Palos Verdes is only expensive because you can drive from there to downtown LA, right? If that house was in the middle of nowhere, it would be it would be worth very little. Um, so like we're all in this big region interdependent on one another and the value here is collectively generated so yeah absolutely and i think the yeah anything on the central coast which is just as beautiful just as uh, nice in fact probably more beautiful than some of the stuff um you know in southern california for the beach quality and everything totally. um yep. but worth a lot less because it's not in the middle of a major region yeah so yeah let's see so can can i leave hopeful though like what do we what do we do moving forward like <laughs> what what's the hope <laughs> I mean, the hope is that the state figures out the COVID response, extends the eviction moratorium, and gets this tax credit for non-payment of rent. And then at the local level, you know, uh, people have to fight for renter protections and zoning reform and kind of proactive construction of affordable housing. Right. And but I it- think that, you know, right, the, we're in this moment of change, I think that, you know, and you know, changing policing is connected to land use. I think that you know, younger generations are have the message on that. And I think that you know, getting educated about how the boring topics of zoning actually are extremely important and how they can be changed uh, is, is something that can can have a big impact. That makes sense. Um, and oh no, I was going to ask you something and I totally forgot. If you give me one second, um, should people do a master's in city planning? Oh, should people do a master's in city planning? <laughs> uh, they want to. They don't have to. You can learn a lot. Just uh, go to some city council meetings and try to read some staff reports. That's a very yeah it, education. Yeah, and actually, some of the folks that I, that I think are doing the most interesting planning work at the local level are not necessarily planners. They're advocates yeah. in, in different fields and specialties. And definitely, um, I, I think I've and seen the Zoom Zoom public comments is, is pretty great. It's oh. a new pastime, right? <laughs> It is. They did not allow Zoom uh, comments. They, they shut that down really quick here. It just ended up getting, like, uh, I guess, messy in the county. Um, so we only had telephone calls and were a really bad system. And they actually made folks uh, comment in person last night. So it was oh, a lot. Yeah. So it was a lot of younger folks that were really angry about being there. Um, I yeah. stayed. I stayed away because I've, I've been pretty much avoiding all public spaces. Um, right. The. Yeah, so it, and I think we're, we'll switch over to, to something else. But yeah, the Zoom commentary is uh, a way to learn a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think it, it's, I mean, it's showed that the in-person, I mean, I've always been strongly opposed to forcing people to go in person to give public comment because it hurts people with kids or with two jobs. Um, so I think that that, I mean, that's one very, very, very small benefit of the, the staying at home ordinances is being able to give public comments over the phone. Um, and consolid- does Santa Ana have consolidated elections? Um, actually, I don't know. What, what's the definition of a consolidated election? So that's something I just learned the fancy term for. It's it's having local elections on November 6th. Oh, yeah. Timed with, yeah. Yeah, and it's Because like, a lot of local governments have stayed exclusionary by having elections in March or in April, uh, kind of where the only thing you're voting on is the city council, and then like five people go vote. 
Okay, yeah, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't know that was a thing because in um, for Orange County, pretty much all, as far as I'm aware, pretty it's much all every, consolidated. Yeah, it's all consolidated. Okay. Like they just. Um, I, I don't know if that's just by tradition uh, or no one. You know, maybe there wasn't that that's one good. nefarious person out there. Yeah, totally. <laughs> that's usually what I find is like if you actually look at the history of these different kind of ideas, it goes back to one person that was in a region and then spread the idea to everybody else. Right. And you're like, this right. is how it happened. Um, well, but, that's good because at least the electorate is younger than oh, yeah. a lot of cities in L.A. Oh, OK. Yeah, I had no idea that was the L.A. issue there. Um, so good And to- the city of L.A. is having consolidated elections for the first time this time around. Oh. So, yeah. Okay, so it was LA leading by example or bad example. A bunch of cities. I'm not sure what the what precipitated it, but a bunch of cities have shifted recently. I don't think it was the Voting Rights Act thing, but it's always just cheaper too. Like you just save money by doing consolidated elections. Yeah. I I just didn't right. think that it was okay. That's yeah, news to me. <laughs> There was oh okay so there was um, one thing I don't think we we talked about it directly you, you did mention it um, in, in passing I think but not like tackling it head on was um, calling for the end of single family zoning so this was mm-hmm. um, uh, a short paper that you uh, put together with uh, uh, say Professor uh, Lenz and um, oh my God uh, Manville sorry I, I never had a class yep. in Manville so I guess I forget his name <laughs> um, so what. Okay, so are you you're calling for the end and ab- abolition of R one single family zoning? <laughs> oh yeah, for sure in cities especially. I mean, but everywhere really, because uh, I don't think there are any good arguments for it really. I mean, I think that, you know the the idea that so a lot of people misinterpret it as we're saying all single family homes should be torn down and forcibly replaced with apartment buildings, um, which is not what we're saying. We're saying that cities shouldn't prevent many units from being built on a single parcel of land. Um, and even, you know, within, like we were saying, like reasonable restrictions on their size, right? So if you can imagine like a 3,000 foot single family home could actually be a threeplex, three 1,000 unit condos mm-hmm. and you it would be the same size, right? So it's not really about what it looks like. And if you care that it's what it looks like, you could just mandate it has like a sloped roof or whatever architectural thing you like. Right. Um, I, I want, but yeah, I mean, it's. I want a brick exterior. I, I want yeah. a chimney and a brick exterior. And like, <laughs> a gable yes. and a swoopy, swoopy front window. Um, Design yeah, matters. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it was interesting because for that piece that we, we published it in the American Planning Association Journal, and we thought we would get more pushback. But, you know, there aren't very many good arguments uh, for preserving it. I mean, it was, it was created like the U.S has this long history of, there's this historian, there's a great book called uh, Segregation, A Global History of Divided Cities. Oh, okay. A guy named Carl Nightingale wrote, and it's about like a history of segregation in in many places. And he especially compares the U.S. to South Africa. And he talks about how basically we're very similar in our racial apartheid systems. It's just that the you know, the Supreme Court in 1917 made racial segregation illegal, and then later racial covenants were made illegal, and then later other kinds of discrimination were made illegal. So, like, we've had top-down uh, made it illegal to do racial segregation. In South Africa, that didn't happen right away, right? So they were able to do it for a long time. But instead, in the U.S., like, we invented workarounds. Like, the white, white Americans invented workarounds to do, effectively achieve the same thing, um, through non, through race blind, quote unquote, 
means. And so single family zoning was one of the one of the major ones, right? So the origins are like in racial and class segregation. So that's a that's a pretty good reason on its own. And then, you know, today it wouldn't mean that all single family homes are destroyed. It would just mean that slowly those neighborhoods would get denser in terms of the number of people who live in them. And, uh, you know, I think it would be, it would promote diversity to some extent in terms of incomes at least, um, and be more environmentally sustainable. I mean, I think that there's a lot of reasons, a lot of reasons to do it. Plus like the idea that as we've discussed, right? So only people that can afford a single family home deserve the right to have their residential neighborhood protected by the plan. And people who live in apartments should be on corridors where there's like more pollution and more noise and all these other things. It's just like this social hierarchy that, that seems immoral. Right. And I do like the 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 phrase that you use though, uh, with moral, right? There There is a certain amount of morality that goes into this decision, kind of where our values are as a right. society. Um, and I think that gets overlooked far too often. Um, and so, I mean, that's rooted in like the gentleman farmer and, you know, it's like slavery and the kind of moralizing affluence and property ownership. And you hear, I mean, go to listen to some city council meetings as a resident and homeowner in this city. Like I have more rights to tell you things. I mean, this is like a very common thing that people think, um, which is which is BS, basically. Right. And, and for me, I, I always find the funny argument like, well, I pay property taxes, but then the um, I guess every, every time you have an apartment owner, <laughs> also, or, renters do too. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, because I'm like, every time you have an apartment uh, complex owner come in, and it's like, well, if you raise my property taxes, my renters are going to have to pay it. And it's like, oh, okay, so they pay it too, but there's no, <laughs> there's no connection there. Like in both, yeah, yeah it's both, yeah. Uh, both there. Like we all pay taxes, um, and we all contribute. And I think that at a certain point, it's like, do you see people as a as a resource or people as a burden, right? Um, yeah. and that's where yeah. it's like. If you look at people one way, or, um, you'll end up with a certain uh, set of conclusions. If you look at people another way, um, a different set. And of course, there's variations. Maybe there are some people out there that are burdens. I know my my parents would love me and all, but uh, you know are, are will, willing to, to get rid of me as soon as they <laughs> they, they can again. Um, um, the the question that I did have, and I finally remembered, um, was as it related to state level planning. So we're seeing this push for more kind of um, um, planning policies being taken over by the state because local municipalities are just not responding. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, I I guess I I look at the, I look at the country of Japan and know that they have at least kind of this major like planning effort that then at least identifies the urbanized zones and then kind of keeps um, some development going on along major arterial corridors that are seen as kind of growth opportunities. And there's like some variation, but it's a much more, uh, streamlined effort yeah, at the country level. Uh, mm-hmm. Quite honestly, to me, the state of California is larger, kind of an equivalently complex um, location and economy instead of um, local, um, let's say, local factors, uh, maybe is the, the best word. But right. you know, is there you know, any kind of hope for at least some form of state-level planning for major, for, for this major like streamlining and just at the very basic yeah. effort of like, what's the difference between an R1 zone and an RS5 or, you know, whatever, like random <laughs> zone. RD 1.5. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, I mean, I think that that's increasingly what's happening. The state government is getting more comfortable preempting local land use powers uh, 
you know, cities are creatures of the state, as they say, right? So they're created by the, they don't have constitutions, they're created by the state constitution and their powers are, so the state can decide to, to override them. I think that uh, increasingly the house, like we have this proposal with uh, Chris Elmendorf and through Abundant Housing actually for uh, their, their lobbying uh, legislators to, to carry this as a bill or to insert it in some language of their bills. Uh, and basically it's, it's through the housing element update process where cities are not complying, where they're not doing a good faith effort to update their housing elements, um, then they can go into kind of like a land use receivership where the state government overrides for some parts of that city, right. suddenly they're the they have the zoning powers, right? And so the state could have you can imagine like a state low we call it the least cost zoning code where it's like there are zoning parameters in terms of a little bit of setbacks, a little bit of height, and these kinds of kind of regulations that would enable someone to build a apartment building or a fourplex for the least amount of money. Mm -hmm. um, that, that that would be like a state zoning code that non-compliant cities would just get forced on them until they got their act together. So basically, like it's you know it's like here it's like with the school system under segregation, right? It's like here's what you have to do. We see you're not doing it, then we're gonna take it over for you. Okay. Um, and I'm looking at Huntington would, Beach. We'll see, we'll see if that happens. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like Huntington Beach, I'm looking at you. And, um, some and cities would really love to to test that uh, right. effort. Yeah, and then, then yeah, it, we'll see once. I, yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. With yeah, that. and I don't see that. like okay. Well, it's like a lot of the offending cities along the coast. So it's California Coastal Commissions, and uh, they're probably it's another uh, added layer of complexity there. Um, yeah. So, Pablo, this has awesome, been awesome. Totally appreciate you uh, coming on. I don't know if there's anything else you, you want to add. I just want to give you enough time to get to your four o'clock as well, so you can take a little yeah. break. Yeah. Uh, cool. No, I think we covered a lot of good good stuff. I mean, I can give you a couple of links to. Uh, things we've published recently that are about local. We have a we have, we published something just today about um, what would happen. So one of the bills in the legislature right now is maybe thirty forty, which would allow fourplexes. And so we estimated kind of what's the market feasibility of building fourplexes in different cities and different parts of cities, just to see kind of like what if we suddenly allowed fourplexes in all single family neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Kind of what do we expect to happen given prices and rents. And that's interesting because you do see a lot of, you know, it's like the richer cities, you would get more of it. And there's a lot of cities where you, you know, Fresno, you would get very little new fourplexes in single family neighborhoods. Right. Um, so that's an interesting piece, but, but yeah, this is, this is great talking to you and uh, good luck with all the, the political efforts. Yeah, we'll, we'll see in a few years. And I guess maybe the academic effort. I, I have no idea. Like yeah. li Life is just up in the air. Um, I think yes, it is for everyone. But um, I'm in a very fortunate yeah. position where I get to either stay home or play video games or just talk to people. And then, what you know, that's about stuff that I enjoy. So very fortunate. Sounds good. Sounds good. Sounds like a professor life, except for the video games. <laughs> you, guys, you guys really should like uh, you know, tune in uh, to, to more video games. You just like listen to lectures. <laughs> you, the, the point is, you listen to lectures on one screen, and then you just like. There you go. Yes. <laughs> Multitask. No. All right. Well, Pablo, uh, cool. appreciate it. Um, and yeah. yeah, and I guess um, we're we're good. We're gonna stop the recording. If I could just add one last thing that's not being recorded anymore, we're, we good. Yeah. 
I had no idea that your your father was a professor of urbanization. Like I ran into one of his works and I was like, wait, this is <laughs> this is not the Man, I'm I'm not that creative. I just follow the family I inherited the family business. Okay, but I can see like so did you did you like grow up like learning about the history of like urbanization and then it just happened to be like a little I think indirectly, but mostly I was like basically until I was like twenty five, I was like, my main plan in life is definitely not to be a professor. And definitely not to live in LA. Like that's super boring. And, and that's what like my lame dad does. And instead I'm going to like travel around the world and do cool stuff and right. do something else. And then like at around 25, I was like, actually, that's a pretty cool life. Like, I think I could do that. And yeah. I mean, randomly that I ended up back at UCLA where he taught because I was in Hong Kong first and I wasn't, you know, this wasn't like the, this wasn't a long-term plan. It was just total coincidence right and but, but, yeah, his book is his book is cool he's is the america becomes urban book is where it's like the main urban history book that's about like cities as businesses mm-hmm. um so i think that point is, is good he also wrote a history of the police book which i have oh. to reread at this point okay yeah now I, i've been trying to get a copy of the um that first one that you mentioned i hadn't like run into it and like okay i just need to like ebay and see like if there is any kind of old outstanding copy anywhere that i can find because uh, no, yeah. no little local library except UCI has it, I think. So I got to go down. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, seriously, I mean, with, I'm happy to help with the PhD application and stuff. Uh, and and be, if you want to talk about doing it at UCLA. Okay. Yeah, definitely appreciate it. Um, yeah, it, um, I, I think for me, I'm just like, okay, well, where do I go? Like, what are the options? And again, trying to stay uh, relatively local and not kill myself, um, trying to do a PhD yeah. and then like run for council totally. at the same time. Um, right. <laughs> so I don't know how that works. <laughs> When is the next election? Uh, so for me, it'll be uh, 2022. So right now I'm just helping out with uh, okay. folks in 2020 because I want to get a progressive council on the board. And uh, the easiest way, or not right. the easiest way, but it's like have to start now so I can have people to work with uh, once I'm on there. Because unless you have four yeah. votes, you don't get anything done. Right. Yeah. And Santa Ana has how many council members? Uh, seven uh, total. One being a, a, wow. a, a directly elected mayor. Yeah. So that's a, oh, wow. That's interesting. That's different. It's interesting how all these things, how these cities are so differently constituted. Yeah, and we're a charter city, and we're redoing our charter, so it's all kinds, wow. of, yeah, all kinds of fun stuff. New general plan, um, you know, it's, it's good. Cool. Well, let's stay in touch. Um, and if you ever want to talk, like, because I'm friends with the Culver City Progressive Culver City Council people. Okay. So if you ever want to talk to them, I mean, if you need other local electeds to talk to about stuff, they're super nice. And there's a guy in Glendale that just won, Dan Brotman, who would be maybe a cool resource. He's like a environmental progressive guy that I think is rich, maybe. Um, hey, we need so, those too. Like, uh, yeah, the, yeah. the revolution's got to be funded somehow, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, and I'm like thinking because he's like, I like lived in China for a long time, and like he didn't say like I made a lot of money, and now I'm like. <laughs> want to give back but i got that vibe from him right so then i'm like maybe you want to like cultivate local electeds in other cities to like work mm-hmm. with you so yeah absolutely because um you know unless we take over the skag board too right it's like i mean man yeah <laughs> megan so the the former one of megan solly wells who is the culver city council one of the culver city council people i'm friendly with is is very up in skag so okay if you ever once you win your seat then you can join skag and she can tell you Yes. The nuts and bolts. Yeah, yeah, that was actually one of the big goals. It's like, I just really wanted to be on the skag board. I was like, I'm only like running so I can be on that skag board. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting place, that skag.
right. Well, cool. Cool, uh, man. It's good to see you. Yeah, same. Uh, Thank you. Take care. All right, so these are the sweet, sweet jazzy sounds of Apollo Bebop. And again, uh, we're hoping that they say yes. Um, so we're going to record this with the assumption that they have said yes. If they did, thank you, thank you so much uh, for allowing us to, to use these songs. You guys uh, do, do a wonderful job here locally. Always love seeing you perform, and I uh, can't wait till we can uh, go see you live again. The um, conversation itself was uh, super wide-ranging for me. I think that you know, the craziest part was how um, you know different the academic perspective is from... Uh, particular policymakers that then have to make these decisions, right? I think that, um, you know, one of the things that I've enjoyed uh, with this conversation more so is that we were able to touch on so many third rail topics, right? It's very um, difficult as an elected official to even bring up uh, some of these issues without completely being shot down. So, um, you know, don't hold this against me in uh, whatever form, or maybe hold it against me, I don't know, just uh, yeah, um, you know, for being willing to discuss uh, these uh, topics. But, you know, there, there are major structural issues that we have in place. And, you know, part of what um, good policy should be is an open and a discussion on what the possibilities are, what the realities are, and that there should be no sacred subjects in some sense, right? There should be this understanding that we need to take a look at how these policies that we have in place uh, both benefit and hurt uh, different communities. So, you know, things from ranging from Prop 13 uh, reform uh, to the um, removal or at least the um, the challenge to single-family zoning as the only way to zone for a residential neighborhood. Uh, these are topics that I think uh, whose time have come. They are definitely fraught with a lot of different impl- implications, and whatever ends up happening in this space uh, will be more nuanced, I think, than some of the online debate will suggest, and that the people that are involved in these types of conversations are really trying to figure out what the best option is moving forward, uh, because the status quo is not working for a majority of Californians. So uh, the more and more Santa Ana residents that I see leaving the city, it's just, it's heartbreaking. And you know, the primary cause always ends up being housing. I don't think it's a lack of jobs, a lack of educational opportunities, or a lack of you know what people want to call personal failing. It is a structural problem that we have in place where we've continued to grow as a region. We continue to add um, relatively high paying uh, good jobs in different parts of the tech, um, entertainment, administrative and just um, overall kind of manufacturing space like you have Southern California that has had a really uh, booming economy for the top. Uh, But we haven't found a way to make it work at least on the housing side, for people that are in our working class, our middle classes, and especially um, our uh, chronically uh, disenfranchised individuals that have been locked out of the system entirely. So, you know, with all that being said, uh, I hope that you did enjoy this conversation. Uh, Please let me know um, if there's any other topics that you'd like to to have. Uh, I want to thank uh, Edgar uh, Silva here at the uh, Michael Scott Paper Company Studios. Uh, I'd like to thank you for listening uh, and uh, Pavo for uh, coming on and uh, discussing um, what is always going to be, uh, to me at least, uh, a very interesting topic, which is housing in the state of California. I said you ain't got 
Giving up still, tenacious, ambitious, so driven you would think you work for living. The things you do, you straight do it with precision. You see your goal with 2020 vision. Run around doing the most, making everybody think that you were a clone or had an identical 20 told knowing about. Really, you just can't stop what's you going the route because you don't quit, you go in. The pride, you'll stop the smell the roses. You're stressed out, feeling worthless. So tired from work in a circuit. But hold up, girl, let me just remind you. I know you don't need me, and it's fine too. But if you're ever feeling alone, just know that inside of my heart, there's a home. I said, You ain't got to worry, baby. Trust when you've been hurt so much Figure you're better off alone than with the herd of a bunch Figure if you never open up to let people in Then you reduce chances of you getting hurt once again Now, your guard made you closed off And the callousness for fighting made you so hard All the folks thought you were born with no heart Forgetting that you used to wear it up on both arms You take on so much for nothing in return But when I feel help, you say it's none of your concern I'll be fine, I'll be fine, repeat You keep lying, you keep lying until you believe the lie until it becomes the truth. And honestly, I'm surprised that you haven't chipped the tooth. That is the reason why you do the things you do. Better you must be tired. It's easy to get consumed in the boom. But hold up, girl, let me just remind you. I know you don't need me and it's fine too. But if you're ever feeling alone, just know that inside of my heart there's a home. I said you ain't got to worry, baby. Thank you. 